We're going to be reading Psalm 8. Um, So if you would turn to Psalm 8 in your Bible, that would be great. So that's Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good morning, church. So I want to open this morning by sharing a cartoon with you that I came across on the internet. Um, So it's pretty simple. I can just explain it to you. Uh, So it's a cartoon drawing of two snowmen. Uh, So, you know, like a a big pile of snow, two big piles of snow with uh, big round snowballs for their heads and some sticks for their arms, uh, a carrot for the nose and rocks for eyes and a mouth. Now, above one of these snowmen is a speech bubble, and he's saying to his mate, don't be so stupid, nobody made us, we evolved from snowflakes. And the point's pretty obvious, right? Common sense tells you that these two snowmen have obviously been made by someone someone with enough strength to physically construct them and enough imagination to conceive of them. You see, what is made reveals critical information about who made it. Now, Psalm 8 recognises this common sense notion, but it goes a bit further. So if you have a look with me at verses 1 and 9, you'll see the psalm is kind of bookended, beginning and end, with God's glorious majesty, self-evident in what he's made. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. But despite this clear emphasis on God's glory, throughout a big chunk of the psalm, the spotlight is actually on humanity. It's not what you might expect because this psalm is a hymn of praise. It's actually the first hymn of the Psalter and it's it's quite typical in structure in that it leads us in praising God in verse 1 before outlining all the reasons to praise him through the rest of the psalm. In the bookends of Psalm 8, we see the glory of God from the vantage point of this fallen, sinful world. And then within Psalm 8, we see the glory of God, yes, but also the glory of mankind from the vantage point of the majestic God who made us. 
You see, God's glory and majesty are manifest to us even as we stand amidst the smoldering rubble of a fallen creation that we broke through our sin. And even in our corrupt fallen natures, we still reflect something of the honour and glory of our Creator. So today we're going to work through this psalm with just two points in mind. Firstly, God's glory, and secondly, mankind's glory. So here we go, part one, God's glory. Verse one. The psalmist proclaims that the Lord, our Lord, the majesty of his name is self-evident in all the earth, and that he's set his glory above the heavens for all to see. So here we get a glimpse of God's awesome power. For millennia, humans have looked up at the night sky, awestruck with the sheer size and grandeur of the cosmos. And, you know, in in modern times, our awe has actually increased, hasn't it? As the images from the Hubble telescope and modern computer modelling reveal more and more of the unfathomable, untamable, vast and beautiful universe of which the earth is a mere blip. We should surely tremble before the power of the one who set these things in place. But more surprising is verse 2, where it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Here, the psalmist says that God has done another thing. Not content to reveal his power through the obviously glorious power of the heavens and the earth, he has also revealed his power in the mouths of those who are not powerful at all. Now, it's really interesting to note how the Lord Jesus referenced this particular verse. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. So while you're turning there, for for context, this is the point in Christ's ministry where he enters Jerusalem in what has come to be known as the triumphal entry. He enters Jerusalem as king, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And how does he come? Check out verse 5. He comes humble and lowly, mounted on a donkey. The very next scene is where Jesus confronts the powerful money changers in the temple. He drives them out and calls them robbers. From verse 14 onwards. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes, so that's the powerful religious people of the day, when they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, that's a title which identified Jesus as the Davidic king. Well, these powerful religious men were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. 
Like so many of the Psalms, this one is fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. By seeing how Christ quotes Psalm 8 verse 2 here, we get an insight into an enduring principle that applies to this day. And that is that God works powerfully through instruments which seem weak and fragile from our point of view. Through children and through the childlike, faithful people of God. So back to Psalm 8 itself. Verse 1, that makes kind of makes sense to us, right? That God's infinite power is shown forth in the seemingly infinite heavens. But verse 2 is not what we expect. Why would the God of the universe choose to work through such lowly and unlikely means. And yet he does. The glory and majesty of the God whose wisdom is unsearchable is shown forth powerfully as the small and weak things of the world thank and praise their creator, even here in little old Bull Creek, Westminster Presbyterian, this and every other Sunday. Hear what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 1. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Paradoxically, it is those who acknowledge their frailty, their weakness, and their dependence on the Creator who God works most powerfully through. If we're not blinded by our pride, God's glory is manifest to us both in His awesome creation and also in His diminutive creatures. And ultimately, His glory is manifest in Jesus the king who comes riding on a donkey, humble and lowly in heart, as a babe in a manger, naked on a cross, conquering the world. Okay, moving on to part two, mankind's glory. So while this psalm is a hymn of praise focused on God's majesty and glory, it actually has an awful lot to say about our glory as humans. In verse 1, God sets his glory in the heavens. But if you look at verse 5, you will see that God has crowned humanity with glory. Verse 1 and 2 contrasted the powerful with the childlike. And then in verses 3 and 4, God's cosmic creational work is contrasted with his intimate personal work. Listen, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is mind blown at the vast majestic work of God, which God has completed carefully and delicately by the work of his fingers Set against the truth that this God, the God whose majesty is evident in creation, the holy God of Isaiah 40, 
who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Well, he is mindful of us and cares for us. He knows us. He remembers us. He thinks about us and is interested in us. He's powerful and awesome, like the power of a billion suns awesome. But he's inclined to us intimately. We look up at the heavens and contemplate his glory while he looks down at us and cares for us. And this is, this is crucial because if we only had the general revelation of the glory of the heavens and the majesty of the earth, as we look out over creation and up into the heavens, what would we discover about God? The author C.S. Lewis says that we would discover that God was a great artist, for the universe is a very beautiful place, but also that God was quite merciless and no friend to mankind, for the universe is also a very dangerous and terrifying place. So just just a side point here, Um, I've got an uncle who's pretty fiercely atheistic, Uh, and one time I, I was trying to talk to him about the implications of the greatness and power of a God who could create such a vast and wondrous universe as the one we inhabit. His response, a God like that wouldn't care about us puny mortals. A God like that certainly wouldn't care about who sleeps with who or how. He wouldn't be peering into our bedrooms. He would have better things to do. But this psalm teaches that the Lord does care about those kinds of things. He is a friend to us. God has the power to create and uphold almost endless galaxies of fiery suns, irresistible black holes and breathtaking supernova. And yet verse 4 says his attention and care is firmly fixed on planet Earth where the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve live and play and work and love. In his steadfast love, God pursues the fallen race who rejected him and rebelled from him. You see, he's not an uncaring, alien, merciless deity. He absolutely cares about our struggles and strife amidst a universe which can seem so dark and uncaring from our vantage point. Contrary to what my uncle thinks, God does use his power to peer into every bedroom, every family, and into the mind and heart of each individual person. But why? Why would a God of such unprecedented power and might fixate himself on such seemingly mundane and petty human affairs? Well, because verses 5 to 6, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Because despite all appearances, 
The affairs of mankind are not mundane and petty to God. They're just the opposite. Unlike the common secular narrative suggests, you are not just a little bit higher than an animal, but in fact, you are a little lower than a heavenly being. The point is that you are of eternal and cosmic significance. God doesn't have better things to do than pay attention to you. Earth is the nursery of God's children. Earth is the place where his image bearers dwell. Earth is, so to speak, the centre of God's household. With his fingers, God made the heavens and the earth, the moon and the stars, that's verse 3, and he made us rulers over all these works of his hands, that's verse 6. And he goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, that he has put all things under our feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. That is to say, everything. We were made to be rulers over the entire world, the entire cosmos, all that is in it. From the largest star down to the smallest microbe, we were created to take total dominion over all as vice regents under God. That's our identity, our destiny. The Bible teaches us that we are not consigned to a life of merely subjective relevance, identified in relation to whatever we choose to value or aspire to, but to a life of real, objective dignity and worth identified in relation to the awesome God who created this vast universe. We walk out of here today crowned by God with glory and honour and commissioned to reflect his majesty, his goodness, his justice, his love in all the earth. But it's not just you and I in church today crowned with glory and honour. It's not just you and I who God is mindful of and cares for. He's mindful of the Muslim, the atheist, the Hindu. He cares for the people of your workplace, your community, your household. The people of Bull Creek, of Williton, of Leeming and all of Perth. His love overflows from the fullness of himself to all people everywhere on the earth. And he has given us the seemingly weak and powerless message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to take forth, to show, to take forth to them, to show forth his majestic name in all the earth. So what's the picture of God, of mankind and of reality itself? that this psalm portrays. Firstly, it presents a view of God as glorious and majestic, yet tender and caring towards all people. Secondly, it presents mankind as dignified and honourable and a creation which is subject to our rule. And yet, when God looks down on the earth, on those he created in his image, those he crowned with glory and honour and made rulers over the works of his hands. What do you think he sees? 
Sadly, he does not see what is glorious and honourable. He does not see a race which acknowledges his sovereignty and love and seeks to live righteously under his loving rule, but a race which has turned against him and against each other, a race which has tainted and marred the image of God, sometimes almost beyond recognition. A race which has fallen so far into rebellion and wickedness that we sometimes look more like a bunch of amoral animals than like those created a little lower than the heavenly beings. A race which has failed in its image-bearing duties, resulting in the smouldering rubble of a creation fallen into decay and chaos. What a majestic and glorious God sees are rebellious people who have aroused his righteous anger and yet because of his steadfast love, people he tenderly cares for. This is the good news of the gospel, that despite our sin and rebellion, God is mindful of us and cares for us. He has acted in history to save us. He came to us as the Lord Jesus Christ, meek and childlike, made lower than an angel, sinless, humble and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He bore our sin, dying the death we deserve, then rising from the dead before being crowned with glory and honour as Lord and ruler over all creation so that we would be saved from the judgment of God and regain our unmarred image-bearing potential and capacity. Now you might say, where do you get all that Jesus stuff from Psalm 8? Well, as we close, please turn with me briefly to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. It's Hebrews 2 from verse 6. There we read, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjugation under his feet. Sound familiar? The writer to the Hebrews goes on. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus died in our place to save us from the righteous judgment of a majestic and glorious God. He died to reverse the curse and undo the damage that we did to ourselves and by extension to all of creation. Jesus died so that the works of his hands might be restored to human management and dominion. Hear these words from Romans 8, verses 19 to 21. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from 
its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When this liberation finally happens, when the children of God are revealed and the creation itself is liberated and brought under their rule, then the words of this psalm, which were true when they were written, are still true today, will be truest of all, totally fulfilled for all to see and say, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see your glory. Thank you that you have chosen us, the weak and the powerless, to show forth your wisdom and might. Most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus' perfect life, death and resurrection imputed to us by faith. We ask for the strength and wisdom to share the news of his gospel with those we love so they might be reconciled to you and your name might be glorified in all the earth. Amen.